the median age of a library that's deployed on these sites in their study behind the most current version is something like 1,177 days. So we're talking like literally many years out of date. This whole sort of package manager coupled with continuous integration, continuous deployment is a wonderful, wonderful attack target. If you can get something in that delivery stream somewhere, then we're all set up to automatically put it in production for you. It would take us about 244 days, I think, if you actually wanted to read the terms of services for the major services that you use. You're never as anonymous as you think. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to uh, The Secure Developer. Today we have Adrian Collier with us. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So it's good to have you, Adrian, here. And today we'll do a slightly different spin on what we do. Typically we talk about kind of this intersection of, of security and development or developers. And today we're actually going to talk about sort of this intersection of, of secure development and security as a whole with science, with sort of paper, with research, with proper research. And that's because Adrian writes the morning paper, so Adrian, can you tell us a bit about, you know, just give us some background about yourself and about the morning paper and what it is? Sure, of course, yes. Yeah. So my background was technical. I did a number of CTO roles for many years. I guess most notably with a company called SpringSource that did something called the Spring Framework in yeah. and around the enterprise Java space. Little known. The, the little known framework. And sort of carried that journey on through VMware and sort of the formation of a company called Pivotal. And then sort of a couple of years into that journey, which is now three, four years ago, I left really to come back mostly to Europe, I mean, where I've always lived, but not always worked, at least not full-time, to see what was happening in the startup scene and lodged myself temporarily with a venture capital firm called Axel here based out of London. And, you know, it's four years on, I'm still there now. So that's a, that's a little bit about my sort of background. And then, yeah, the, the morning paper is, I guess, a, a habit I slipped into by accident. About four years ago, I was sitting on the train on my commute on the way into London with, with my fellow passengers looking at sort of the, the Times and the Telegraph and other newspapers that we have here in the UK. And I happened to be reading an academic paper that morning and I thought, oh, this is kind of fun. Everybody's reading their morning paper. And I, I tweeted the title of my paper with a little hashtag, hash the morning paper. And I'm not quite sure exactly how it happened, but I've done it every day since. Uh, so <laughs> so for, it'll, it'll be four years this August that every wow. weekday, bar um, you know, sort of Easter and Christmas breaks, etc., I have read a computer science research paper, uh, typically in the morning, and then sort of written up my thoughts and posted it as a summary towards the end of the day. And so, Well, yeah, that's uh, definitely, we're going to dig into that a little bit more about <laughs> this uh, unusual and quite impressive habit that you've developed there. I think today you and I prepped a little bit, you know, a bunch of uh, topics, mostly you, <laughs> uh, kind of some of the uh, really interesting studies or, or papers that happened or that, that you posted and wrote about that dealt with security or secure development. So let's dig through some of those and maybe at some point we'll, we'll come back a little bit to, uh, to this like morning routine of yours. So you know you, you write about a lot of papers, right? And uh, and they they cover many topics that touch security. You know, clearly a hot topic these days, uh, including in the uh, in the textual world. The first kind of area maybe to tackle is just things around security that are more more sort of in in the day to day. Like you know, we read, we think oftentimes of these research papers as these you know like 
far, yeah, exactly. you know, theoretical exactly. issues. Yeah. Are there any of the papers that, that you've read that are interesting, that are sort of applicable that people can absorb and use something in, in their day-to-day uh, development jobs or security jobs? Yeah, yeah there really are. And you're right. it's, a, it's a really common misconception that kind of like there's a big gulf between work that might be done in academia and sort of practical day-to-day stuff. But I guess you know, sort of my bias is to select papers that have some more immediate relevance to practitioners anyway. But, you know, there really are... Um, bunch of papers that kind of open your eyes to what's going on and what's possible, things that, you know, to think about and maybe even to take practical steps. Um, and so, so you know, thinking about this, we, we picked a, a paper to begin with called Thou Shalt Not Depend on Me, which uh, came from the NDSS conference in 2017, and it is by Lauinger et al. And it's something that everybody can relate to. It's really straightforward, and you sort of you hear the story and you go kind of like, oh, of course, yeah, it's not surprising, and yet... It's kind of sad at the same time. And so what, what the researchers did is they studied top websites, I think it's like 133,000 or so, and they mm-hmm. split it between top Alexa websites, like the top 75,000, and also then sort of some random sampling from the dot-com, you know, sort of long tail. So you've got a good mix of sites in there, pretty representative. And they simply look at kind of, well, what's being included on those sites, in particular JavaScript libraries? And then within that world of JavaScript libraries, as, as best they can, which is also sort of an interesting part of the paper because this is quite difficult, they try and figure out, well, these are the most popular JavaScript libraries and they settle on like the top 72. Then they try and find out what they can about known vulnerabilities, exploits, etc., in those libraries, which turns out to be not that easy. Indeed. And they get good data on kind of 11 or so of the 72. And then they do um, an interesting analysis that just says, well, how many of these sites now, you know, we've got a big corpus, how many of them have at least one vulnerable library? And so they start to analyze, like, how good are we at keeping up to date with libraries that we're including in our projects, particularly on the browser side, you know, what, what's going on there, and sort of trying to understand people's patterns and practices. And I guess the, I say that the shocking but perhaps not surprising thing is a huge percentage of even very popular sites have known, you know, vulnerable libraries included in their site. You know, it doesn't mean they're all directly exploitable, of course, yeah, of but course. They've, they've all got some vulnerability in there. It's sort of 21% of the Alexa top 100 sites, to give you an idea. And as you, as you grow out sort of to the full 75,000, we hit about 38%, which is pretty stunning. Um, yeah. And what's interesting when they dig into this is, you know, ASN to be aware of, but then there's a few extras, like sort of often it's not the libraries you've directly included, though it can be, yeah. um, and we can talk about that in a moment, but it's libraries that get indirectly included by something that you have pulled in. And out of that, the very worst culprits turned out to be all of the kind of ad trackers and analytics mm-hmm. kind of libraries, etc., that have a really bad habit of pulling out-of-date things into your, yeah. into your stack, and then you're, then you're kind of in a bad place. Super interesting, you know, and I remember that that piece, you know, and it made made some headlines, you know, kind of uh, it got to sort of the the hacker news, the That's mainstream right, attention, yes, yeah. because you know, beyond the uh, the catchiness of the data bit, you know, it's not always that you can sort of summarize the key finding of a research paper. <laughs> yes, exactly. a, it's very line. immediately understandable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I think there, there's the insight itself, which is really interesting, and the secondary insight of of the fact that they didn't pull it in. But I find it interesting, like this delta, like we oftentimes see, you know, we do some of this ourselves, vendor-driven analysis, like bulk data analysis that comes down and does it. How do you differentiate or how do you see the difference between like a research paper that comes out with this type of statement versus, you know, some non-research or a vendor entity? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's sort of clearly, you know, a vendor could equally have done this particular piece of research just like the, you know, the academic team could have done. 
I think there's always this sort of air of plausibility that comes with the with the academic thing, or or put it this way, if you want to flip it the other way, if a if a vendor does it, it's obvious they've got a vested interest. Yeah. So nobody is that surprised when the result comes out, and there's always an overtone of buy my tool. And whereas when it's a when it's a pure piece of academic research, you can just look at the data and you go, well, okay, you know that. That's, you know, so at least it sort of should be independently verifiable. It should be peer reviewed, et cetera. You know, I can hopefully go and actually look at the data sets they use in many cases and, you know, verify this for myself. Yeah. And now you've got the question of, okay, what do I do about it? And that's where, of course, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody had a tool that would tell you <laughs> if you had out of date dependencies? And, you yeah. know, surprise, surprise, here we are. But, you know, it is it's actually, and that's the, um, it's the other interesting side, I think, of this work for me is that question about what do you do about it? I mean, clearly, it says you really do need something that's, that's keeping you on top of these dependencies. You can imagine what's going on in these larger companies. Somebody builds the site, it's done, it's deployed. Why would you go kind of back and touch this and tamper with it, et cetera? So they also drill into the stats around that. And that's quite, um, again, not surprising, but it, you know, it's quite a revealing picture. So the kind of the median age of a library that's deployed on these sites in their study behind the most current version is something like, 1,200 odd days, 1,177 days. So we're talking like literally many years out of date is, yeah. is the median situation, which also means, you know, painfully, especially given the, um, the rate of breakage of versioning in and around the JavaScript ecosystem, that from people to, to keep current, it's often not just changing patch level. Yeah. You know, semantic versioning, et cetera, has been adhered to, but you're, you're going minor, you're maybe going major. So there's, you know, we actually have, you know, collectively a ton of work to do to, to bring this together, you know, so that, you know, if there, if there was, even if you know, the standing is on outside, like, you know, get it clean first and have some process to keep it clean yeah. know, is, is really the only way to do this. Do you find that, like, when you read these papers, do they generally bias to have a kind of actionable recommendations? I mean, data in theory should be, you know, used <laughs> to, to prove a thesis, right? So, so I guess, you know, that, that varies tremendously. So, there's a little bit of selection bias in the papers I choose to cover. You know, sort of, I, I tend to go for ones that I think are relatable and sort of somebody can apply. But certainly, not not all papers actually, you know, yeah. are there with the purpose of telling you pragmatic, actionable steps. You know, the first and primary purpose for any kind of academic paper is to be published. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and sort of anything beyond that is normally a bonus. Yeah, it's just extra. So this is kind of one example. So you know, good, very concrete example. What other example comes to mind around you know, kind of practical? Yeah. So, so I guess there's a there's a lovely counterbalance to this. So if you think we just we just talked about a paper and a piece of work that really says um, it's really important that you keep your dependencies up to date, and you need some process around that. And if you don't, you're probably going to have way more vulnerabilities than you think. The flip side is, you know, how do we do that? Well, often we're using package managers, etc. And it kind of you know makes me smile that. We put an enormous amount of trust in like running app get update or you know whatever, whatever the bundle install or Indeed. whatever it is that the automatic kind of, action. Often with with privileges, it's the thing that we always do first that pulls essentially software we don't really know quite what's in it yep. off of the internet and installs it in our precious machine and you know what? that. That's Why wouldn't the, you trust something you just downloaded off the internet? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's that, the that's thing it's the one thing we're all trained to trust, <laughs> and yet obviously when when you kind of flip it around and think about it. This whole sort of package manager coupled with continuous integration, continuous deployment is a wonderful, wonderful attack target. Indeed. You know, if you can get something kind of in that delivery stream somewhere, then we're all set up to automatically put it in production for you. 
uh, which is a you know, second thought. yeah a beautiful and scary pipeline. And so, yeah, the, the second paper maybe is interesting. It's one called Diplomat, and it, it's got a long time so using delegations to protect community repos. So it's from 2016, and it looks at this problem of really how do you know you can trust what you know what you're getting when you npm install, when you gem install, when you you know use whatever these package managers from the Docker Hub, from PyPy, whatever it is. And they analyze a bunch of these systems and look at what's going on. And in particular, this work focuses on kind of the signing of the, of the packages in various ways and looks at how do we sign today? What are the various strategies that are used? For example, you know, there's one single master key that's used by the repo, or maybe developers have their own keys. Maybe there's some kind of delegation mechanism. How does it work? Obviously, there are ways that you know, a single compromised key can do a ton of damage. Indeed, you know, yes. as, as as in fact has happened in in some you know packages in the past. Um, and so again, this is a very pragmatically grounded paper. I guess if you're not writing a a package manager or a package delivery, it's, it's of less immediate use, but it's it's something you really need to be aware of when you think about what you're pulling into your your systems all the time. And so they they devise a kind of a key delegation system. That they they tested it out with PyPy and I think with something behind Docker and a few others that really says, look, we need to think about how keys are managed for signing this stuff. It needs to be pragmatic so it actually works. We need to accept things like we wish developers always signed, but you know what? Sometimes they don't, and so actually we as the managers of the repository are going to have to sign it, etc. And really, it's um. It's very straightforward. It's a delegation hierarchy of trust, and they've got two basic mechanisms. You can basically have a prioritized list of signers. It's exactly what you think. Like first go to A, and if A doesn't have it, you can fall back to B. And then they have a way of specifying like this particular rule terminates the chain. So you know if you get as far as C, you should never look any further, so that you you can stop cascading. And then really they they just say well, given that you know how how could we pragmatically use these tools to do a lot better around the repos that we've got, and they're sort of their maximum security model. They have a legacy one as well, but let's talk about the the maximum security model. Basically has three buckets, right? So you've got what are called claimed projects. So let, let's think of these as the healthy ones with active maintainers, and we know who mm-hmm. they are, etc. You can set up a proper key delegation to the people that own. That collection of projects, often there's a, a group that go together. I think about Spring, for example. There's lots of things under the Spring umbrella. Yeah. They're collectively owned group of projects. So you can say these, these are claimed known projects. We can use offline keys that are owned by that particular team to do this, and the developers themselves will do it because they're active, they're engaged. The second kind of bucket of packages, they call them the rarely updated you know, I think like the forgotten ones, you know, they're, they're useful, they're, they're still out there, they're downloaded, but they're, they're kind of stable and mature, at least. Let, let's, let's put that benevolent yeah, light on the, it. The, um, positive note on them. Yeah. And so, so for these ones, I say, well, look, actually in that bucket, we use offline keys again. The admins of the repository will do it. This is okay because they're infrequently updated, so we can manage the tractability around that. Um, Might make it more cumbersome to deploy, yeah, yeah. but... That doesn't happen exactly, that often. and then you've then you've got your sort of your problematic bucket, which is the new upcoming projects bubbling up. What do you do about that? And for those that keep the keys online, is the solution because you know, they're they're coming through all the time. Offline signing is a pain, but it's mitigated by saying, look, when a new one comes on with it, we we'll sign it with online keys. But every two weeks, we kind of rotate those down into the claimed projects bucket. So you've always got a, a limited window. So it's actually, I mean, it's actually a fairly kind of simple to understand scheme, but they analyze, for example, what would happen with PyPy users looking at the, 
the you know, Python packages, what comes down if you'd had this system in place. And they assume a, it's quite interesting, a threat model whereby an attacker basically takes over the repository, has all the keys, exists undetected for about a month. I mean, I would imagine up front that this is like game over. We're all hosed. Yeah. And actually, they managed to protect. So if they had that system in place, about 99% of PyPy users well, would still be kind of good, even under that kind of threat. So yeah, pretty massive. Again, yeah, a, a few pragmatic things that can make a big difference. You know, maybe it's worth just very briefly talking about a related work called Chainiac because it goes sort of one step further here and they, they look at things like co-authorities, which is having multiple signatures all coming together and fully fashionable to have a blockchain. Actually, they have several blockchains underpinning it so that we've got uh, actually a proper use case. I, mean, I think this is a, this is a ve- genuine valid use case, you know, an immutable public record yeah. of the releases that have come out and the corresponding signatures. You know, that makes a ton of sense. And they don't and say so, blockchain anywhere in the. Uh, they do use the word blockchain, but, uh, <laughs> but it's not. But it's, a but it's concept, not published yeah. as a flashing lights blockchain paper, you know. So, um, so yeah. But then you know there there is a lot of work in this in this area, and I mean I think it's the whole sort of software supply chain is, is a phrase that you know likes to be used here. You know, we, we've got a lot of work to do. I think to secure it all the way up and down the line. Yeah, indeed. No, this is this is awesome. I think um, for me, it almost like on a on a natural level feels the most appropriate type of, of analysis for kind of more academic mindsets to do, just given that is, you know, first of all, kind of fundamental, you need a very comprehensive analysis to understand all the scenarios. The word pragmatic that you use there is not often kind of seen in there, <laughs> so that's nice that that was added, but also the, you know, entirely neutral or, you know, again, minus the desire for your work to be used, but there's no financial interest at least uh, in play. And subsequently, you know, there's probably like core math elements here almost, right? Sort of architectural structures and just an understanding in, of In many cases, what to is, do the, to do the analysis of various kinds. Yeah, I mean, like, there's, uh, like, say, like a, when, when you get a good project, these research papers are real treasure troves because, yeah. you know, somebody or maybe a team has spent many, many months normally doing all this work and packaging it up and then condenses all the learnings for you into kind of you know, a short, you know, relatively bite-sized piece. So, um, yeah, so if, if you get one on a topic of interest, they can be terrific. What's your experience been around seeing these papers manifest in kind of real-world products or offerings or, or open-source projects that get used in, in earnest? That's, that's a really interesting question. I'm often surprised. You know, I have a bias towards picking sort of, as I said, more practitioner-oriented papers, but even so... You expect that the bulk of the ideas are, are ahead of or a little bit sort of left field for sort of the mainstream kind of commercial industry. But I do have sort of anecdotal data from sending out papers to uh, you know, a few thousand people now every day, to nearly 20,000 people, yeah. to my surprise, that um, at least get the email. Whether really they open it, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's terrific. And you know, reasonably often, two things happen. So one is I'll get feedback like, well, like, you know, I never knew I needed this research, but it arrived at just the right moment and it really helps with something mm-hmm. I'm doing. So there is like an element of serendipity where sort of something arrives that helps somebody that I couldn't have predicted, they couldn't have predicted in advance. Yeah. Um, the other thing that is really interesting to me is, again, although I couldn't plan it and I never know what element it's going to be, but obviously in my role with Axel, I get to meet a lot of companies, you know, hear a lot of business plans, see a lot of exciting tech stuff yeah. that's going on. And it's amazing how often what I've learned and picked up just from trawling through some of the research is highly relevant to those conversations. So, um, you know, again, I, if you said to me, just do the section of papers that are going to be relevant, I couldn't do it, obviously. But there is a quite a high correlation. And I think in general, 
the gap between academia and industry, that kind of transition time has been shrinking yeah. as it has everywhere else. But, you know, like the one I really sort of always think about is like the Berkeley Amp Lab and all the projects that came out of that, you know, the Spark, et cetera. And, you know, how quickly they went from, you know, actually a pretty well-structured research agenda, but to, to open source to companies in a matter of no time. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, you know, definitely different than, than in the past. And I think a part of it is the world learning to embrace the the tech or the research, and a part of it is, you know, maybe, you know, at least a stream within the world of the academy that is biases for sort of more practically applicable research. Yeah, but either yeah way, exactly. You know, I mean, like we, the, we benefit from um, the entrepreneurial spirit has definitely infused academia in a way that it hadn't, you know, yeah, like 10, before. 15 years ago. And so I think I'm sure that helps. So let's uh, let's sort of shift gears a bit from the practical to the novel, right? So like those are concrete, practical things that we do today that we should change. But sometimes, you know, research is all about kind of breaking limits, right? Finding new avenues of thoughts. Yep. So in the world of security, you know, what examples come to mind that have done something novel around mm. kind of this this so, security this, activity? This is kind of one of my one of my favorite things actually in security <laughs> papers is the sheer ingenuity of their researchers and the ways that they find to break things that leave you kind of like simultaneously with this, well, that is so cool feeling, and oh my God, that's terrifying. You know, sort of, both, both things are, are true at the same time. And one of the papers that I came across that sort of caught the imagination of a, f- a few folks in that arena was called uh, sort of when, when CSI meets public Wi-Fi, which is a, <laughs> actually for, for an academic research paper, it's a very catchy title. It's a really so good they, title, yeah. So that they did terrific there. And uh, the CSI here actually stands for Channel State Information and sort of the... the the headline of the paper is sort of like you're using your mobile phone, you're interacting with you know some service that requires you to enter a PIN in order to, for example, validate a payment, something like that. And simply by the way that your hand moves across the surface of your phone when you're tapping in the PIN, the researchers are able to infer what your PIN is with surprisingly high accuracy. I think it's like 60 70% success rate. And they're, they're recovering... Six-digit pins in one test for the Alipay service, and they get like a stack ranking of the pin could be this, and you know number one result is what the the pin actually is, and if you looked at their top three, top five scores, obviously they're doing pretty well. So yeah. this is really quite stunning, well, and it's yeah. kind of like, okay, how how the hell does this work? And it's really it's like super ingenious. So the setting is classic coffee shop kind of setting, and you're you're sat at the table working, and the the attacker needs to be relatively close, sort of another table within the coffee shop, a few meters, something like that. And you know it begins with the old chestnut of let's set up a rogue kind of access point. Um, so we uh, we should all know about those rogue access points, Indeed. but we still um, fall for them. But yeah, we still fall for them. So it's a rogue access point. So now um, then it's to decrypt your traffic though. So it turns out that you can figure out when somebody's about to go to one of these payment services, you've got to time the attack just right. Simply by looking at the IP address. They often use different IP addresses for the payment part of the service. because yeah. So they just look for traffic going to that for IP security, address. For actually, like to uh, they use yeah, yeah, the other exactly. services so, for security purposes. Doesn't yeah. this happen so many times? Yeah, so, so it's a different address. They're relatively stable, like a couple of weeks or so. So like, I'm an attacker, I, I use the site, I go to that service, I use some kind of you know traffic sniffer, see the IP address, great, got it. When my victim in the coffee shop now goes to that IP address, what I start doing is sending a high rate of ICMP requests, ICMP echo requests. And they'll bounce back little replies, about 800 a second, um, which sounds a lot, but actually the bandwidth requirement is such that nobody's going to notice this. This is completely surreptitious. And what happens is in the network interface card, many, many of them will also freely make available to you what's called this channel state information. So you know sort of your Wi-Fi can go over a number of different channels 
And the strength of the channels is based on sort of the constructive and destructive interference, all sorts of things that goes on. So you can imagine you know, the, in the phone, your hands are around the phone and moving across it. Yeah. That's enough to interfere with, with these different channels, which is detectable in this CSI information inside the network card. And it turns out you can run a classifier on that. And in the paper, there are little pictures of the waveforms and they're very identifiable. And you can figure out which digit it is. Now, you do need to know how that particular user moves their hand. So you might think, oh, this is a weakness of the strategy. But as they point out, you know, maybe a little bit of creativity to figure that out. Yeah. For example, one could throw up a capture for using this particular Wi-Fi service or something along the lines that sort of yeah. happens to have digits in the capture image. And there you go. You know, you've, you've caught, you know, a few, yeah. there are very creative ways of doing this. You also don't um, need 67% success rate. I mean, if you, if you normalize the patterns and you were successful, you know, 10% of the time, yeah, that's yeah. really good exactly. stats for, uh, so, for attacks. So, you know, it's, um, you know, there, there are loads of, it's actually, when you look at this, there are, there are so many ingenious ways of recovering passwords and pins, you know, microphones on the keyboard, accelerometers, you know, they've done it with smartwatches, they've done it with, you know, webcams, all sorts of things. But this one is kind of special and is zero access to the device, you know, sort yeah. of a nice, nice remote hands off. And um, amazing. it just like, it shocks us all that, like, oh, wow, that's even possible. I just yeah. never thought of that. It's you know, all really. this, uh, this whole class of uh, side channel attacks, right? Exactly. Sort of this ability yeah, yeah, to use a, a, a generally, you know, a seemingly benign channel that you yeah. think would have nothing to do with it and, yes. and still reconstruct yeah, I mean, it. This is a little bit off piece, but very, because you, you reminded me of that, there was, there was a, a piece of work called Clock Screw along that lines that also really kind of caught my imagination, which looks at the DVPR, the kind of the, the power management for the chip, where to, to save your battery, you can sort of, you can downscale it a little bit, you can reduce the power, you can, you can reduce the frequency, etc. Or you can, of course, increase it back again. And it turns out there aren't good enough safeguards around that, and it's open. And so you can, you can push the thing into overclocking to cause occasional bit flips. And yeah. then there's this whole other wonderful story that, like, and again, it doesn't seem intuitive, but the, the way this feels, it's just incredible. If you can flip one single bit, you're basically kind of hosed, it turns out, really. And the, the way I kind of intuitively came to understand that is, Think about at the core something like the factoring of prime numbers or something like that, that fundamental that sits right behind all of this. And imagine if you could just change one bit at the appropriate time, the odds are you've got a much more factorable number, for example. And so there are, you know, that, that's just, it's just an example. It's not exactly how it all works, but there are many little things like that where you time the bit flip such that all the guarantees you thought you had, you know, yeah, break and disappeared um, on it. Some of these side channel things are just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's fascinating, you know, alarming, but fascinating. <laughs> yes, Give indeed. us another example yeah. of like a, an interesting... Uh... Uh, yeah, so, so another one I kind of picked when we were thinking about this. It's also phone-based, it turns out, but leave your phone at the door is a, is a really kind of interesting one. So this is actually about sort of, I guess, industrial espionage or those kind of scenarios. And so imagine we're in a industrial manufacturing plant and, you know, I've got some CNC milling or some 3D printing or something like that going on and... There's a lot of IP actually in the way I construct and manufacture these objects. And so, so if you're physically in the plant and you're near enough the machine, and I can either figure out a way to plant some kind of malware on your phone, or if that's too much hassle, I just call you up and you're happy to talk to me yeah. uh, in, the, in the vicinity of the machine, then I can use the phone's microphone. Or if I've actually got the phone, I can use uh, the magnetometer as well. And you know these machines give off characteristic noises um, depending on the angle of the head, 
So depending on sort of what, what they're printing and sort of when they move kind of, for example, vertically up and down, you can imagine a characteristic sort of whine noise. I can sort of hear what it might be like in my head. Those are also fingerprintable, it turns out. I mean, it could be done reliably enough to be in the background of a phone call. And so you can actually, and again, the paper has some pretty amazing examples of a, a particular shape being printed out and, you know, reconstructing after the fact here's the shape that I think you printed. And you know, again, they're, they're relatively simple shapes in the world, but the fact that it's possible at all is actually, yeah. you know, the astonishing thing, you know, and, and hence again, the, um, the kind of the, the fun title in the paper of like, really, I guess, you know, the, one of the takeaway lessons here is, as we all know, these phones are amazing kind of spying devices Indeed. packed with sensors and all sorts of things. And people have you know, the most creative ways of, Getting yeah. information out of them, and so really, you know, just and, another example of what can be done. And information you provide uh, can and will be used against you. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Uh, yeah, those elements. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And there's is a you know I know we had a challenge here because there's just so many creative. I guess that's really where the minds kind of go wild a little bit when uh, when kind of uh, researchers can just sort of explore different paths. Yes. Yes. So this is you know we've 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 only mentioned like a handful <laughs> of these, but these are. You know, like you collect this, you know, ridiculous number of uh, papers, right? That you sort of you read, which I assume you also you read more of those, <laughs> uh, and then you you write and you summarize. I mean, how do you do it? You know, how much time does it take? You know, what are your sources? Yeah, uh, some of the most frequently asked questions. So I guess sort of really short on you know, how long does it take, which is probably my most favorite question. It probably takes me between two and three hours on average to kind of read the paper, think about it, write it up. And then, especially if I took into account then like the the time to actually turn it into a, a blog post and an email newsletter and a couple of tweets that go, you know, like yeah. the whole packaging it up and pushing it out. So it's about, it probably is closer to three hours a post. I try not to add up the total time too often, but it's, it's somewhere on that order. In general, I read the paper on in the morning. If, if I'm commuting in, I'll say I use the commute time to do it, but Otherwise, if I'm just at home, I'll sort of read it in the morning. I sort of like to let it mile around in the back of my mind. I mark it up quite heavily as I read it. And then later on, I'll just come. It's just one take because if you're doing one every day, you haven't got time to be too um, yeah. too precious about it. So I think that discipline actually helps. You just, you just got to do it. Just go start writing. And I'll kind of outline the, the piece, my key thoughts. I'll try and figure out what's the story I really want to tell around this and then and then get to it. So that, that's kind of the, the basics of the process. You know, paper selection, something that sort of, I guess I've honed it over the years, but people say, where do you find the interesting papers? And there's a number of ways of doing it. When you're just getting started, there are actually quite a few good just lists of papers out on the internet. You know, sort of, a, you'll get through that fairly quickly, but for, for sort of like seed material in a topic area, that's great. Then you might look at recommended reading lists for university courses, etc., um, which will help you find some of the kind of the classic sort of test of time papers that give you a solid background. Um, and then the other thing that I guess has become the, the the bedrock of my personal routine is you get to know both research groups and conferences that regularly publish work you like. Yeah. And so I, you know, I actually have a calendar with the, the main conferences I follow all marked on it. I know when they are in the year. I know right now is the time to go look at their proceedings and kind of, you know, I'll work through and do a first pass through the abstracts. So these ones yeah. might be interesting. Then I'll do the quick read and then I'll have the final selection. And that that is kind of like the cornerstone now of my year. You know, I probably have about 20 odd conferences that I regularly follow. Plus, you know, sort of the, the pressure, I suppose, in a sense of you've got to come up with one every day. Yeah. I'm always on the lookout for an interesting paper. And so, you know, sort of anywhere I see, it, you know, Twitter, newsfeed, whatever, I stash them all away and then, you know, sort of 
I work through that backlog. So explore it. The, uh, do you at this point do you get a lot of papers sent to you? Do you I get, get a lot of. I get some, um, and it's always very gratefully received by the patrons. This thing, once they send me a paper, those are always you know very very welcome. I do get a few, you know, sometimes from researchers saying, hey, we've just published this work, I think you might find it interesting. Sometimes from researchers pointing out somebody else's work, which is always lovely, saying, hey, I saw this thing, I think it's really good. Sometimes from practitioners, yeah, so they, they do come in, but it's still a minority still sourcing amount, avenue for me, yeah. yeah. Got it. Do you write them up in advance? Like, do you bulk write? <laughs> like, do you write, like, seven of them so you can yes, get a day off? Yeah, I do, absolutely. <laughs> so, so this is one of the, the things that keeps me sane. Right? So my, my weeks are very hectic and varied. You know, I could be off here, there, mm. and everywhere. So I don't live within a 24-hour pressure window to have the next day's post. I am normally one week in advance. By the end of the weekend, I like to have all the posts from Monday to Friday kind of all scheduled and good to go. Yeah. People who follow regularly will notice they all come out and the tweet at exactly the same time every day. That's because they're all scheduled in advance. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny, actually, this, this week I'm reading a collection of papers from a, a really terrific workshop. I'm excited to be able to share these with people called Recoding Black Mirror, if anybody's followed the, yeah. the Black Mirror show. And it, it's looking at Talk about spooky. many of these various <laughs> scenarios and you know, how technology could go wrong and the ethics around it. And one of the papers I was reading was about sort of what rights do people have to data once you know a person is deceased? You know, but how should we think about data rights? And that's just, it turns out to be a really interesting question. Um, and it caused me to think, you know, yes, actually, if something happened to me, it's a very long answer. Yeah. On average, you'd still get two and a half posts. <laughs> so, yeah, fingers crossed, this won't happen. But you're good for at least two and a half days if yeah, it does. On average, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. So yeah, and I think we'll probably share like a bunch of these links, also a, a bunch of the stories that we don't have time to talk about yes, today course, yeah. uh, in the in sort of the notes of this podcast because there's there's so many of them. Let's sort of shift back, I guess, into the content. So you know, I guess another category uh, we chatted about was sort of you know not just exploring the new attack techniques, but rather the other way around, like the security of the new technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, and what do they imply? Are there a couple of interesting examples from, from that world? Yeah, so, so there's one that we kind of bounce back and forth that, again, like, is a, it's another, oh, of course, once you hear it, but actually I, I must admit to being quite naive and not thinking about this beforehand. And so it's, uh, the paper title is called Game of Missuggestions. And uh, again, it's a bunch of researchers that analyze what autocomplete suggestions do you get when you start typing in your web browser, you know, when you, when you go to sort of, you know, Google and do a Google search, etc. And I guess I've never really thought about that as an attack vector, but it, it turns out not only is this an attack vector, there's actually an entire service industry <laughs> that, will, that will carry out this attack for you for a fee, ranging from about $300 to $2,500, depending on kind of like the, the sort of keywords you're interested in, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, the Just goal that. is that, like, you know, suppose that the example in the paper, the main one is, I'm interested in finding online backup software classic thing there where I might want to provide you my online backup Indeed, software because yeah. that's probably going to have access to all your files and that sounds interesting. And so, you know, you start typing online backup and in your autocomplete suggestions, you might get like shady vendor, online backup free download kind yeah. of autocomplete suggestion. And to me, at least, I, I'd imputed some kind of degree of trust to what I was seeing. I mean, this is clearly a popular search. It must be a well-known thing. That turns out it's completely unwarranted uh, due to these services that wow. um, even, even with Google, et cetera, are very effective. And so they analyze this whole ecosystem, which turns out to be making about half a million dollars a week for some of the more popular kind of manipulation services, or I think as it's called 
online reputation management services <laughs> <That's> the, <laughs> so the, the phrase they might like to use and and really what they do is they're straightforward you know you say like this is the, the search terms i'm interested in this is the little phrase i want to pop up and they'll go and they'll use armies of sort of crowdsource workers and other things to just drive a high volume of search requests using those keywords to and it must appear somewhere in the results system then to then click on the appropriate link and to do this over and over and over again and it turns out you know, in the experiments that after some period of elapsed time, which can be up to a month, but in the grand season, that long, you can seriously game this and get your preferred phrase right up near the top of the results. And it can stay there then for one to three months as well. So it's actually a pretty effective mechanism. Yeah, that's and, pretty good. Uh, People pay kind of good money for advertisements that are placed in that. In exactly. That yeah. Better than, actually, the way they uncover how this is going is also kind of cool. So it's worth a short digression. You know, many people will have heard of this thing called word to vec that lets you kind of take a word and turn it into a sort of a vector representation that somehow embodies its meaning. And so what they looked at is if the autocomplete suggestions are kind of genuine, they probably ought to be fairly similar in space to true search results that you would get if you actually completed the search. And so they, they do this kind of word to vec and then they look at the... Um, the distance in the vector space, and they find that indeed, actually, the ones that have been manipulated are like sort of about you know, arbitrary scale, but about 0.7 distance. Yeah, 0.7 distance, and the ones that are genuine are 0.5, something, something of that order. Yeah. There's, there's a real gap anyway. And there's these word to vec techniques can uncover it by looking at the similarity. Yeah. Um, Which will probably like so. imply that you know Google might employ these to identify those components, and then the attackers would find a different way to sort of. It, it's, it. it's a never ending arms race. Yeah, it's but amazing sort of that you every, can... every sort of surface you expose, somebody will find a creative way to try and manipulate to it, it to their end. Yeah. And that the attacks can scale to a magnitude where like you think of Google as this like just yes, sort of volume and size that can no that, longer be affected by by that, kind of a that is the incredible entity. thing, isn't it? But you know, I yeah. guess if you're if you're targeting sort of niche enough areas, you can game the system, it turns out. Yeah. That's amazing. It's interesting, I guess, in many ways, right? You know, one is the, the, the identification of it, the, the pattern itself, scary, a little, yeah. you know, trust those recommendations less. The attack on, on Google in that scale, but also the attack on, on like machine learning data, right? This is kind of a new methodology yes. that we're oh, also I mean, embracing and shows how if you can, if you can kind of uh, manipulate or, or uh, poison the data, Precise. I mean, you that, can poison yeah, the that's, results. That's a whole other area, kind of, we probably haven't got time to drill in, but there's some great work on that, you know, sort of, a, as you say, if you can influence the training data or the training time in a model, etc. You know, they're learning machines. Yeah. And they will learn what you tell them. You and can teach of, them something wrong. You you can absolutely bias what comes out of those systems if you're feeling malevolent. So I think we have time for one more. Let's dig um, into one more uh, kind of a interesting, you know, security of a new frontier. Okay. Uh, so my absolute favorite that I've recently read, and it's it's like science fiction to me, uh, this, this particular one. And it's called um Securing wireless neurostimulators is, is the paper title. And if you're not familiar with a neurostimulator, it's a, it's a medical device uh, called an IMD, an implantable medical device that you, you often sort of have planted in, in your chest or somewhere, somewhere around there, and it's directly wired to your brain. So already this sounds like, oh, this is yeah, kind of interesting. That's a, that's a, yeah. And you know, if, if you have you know, like certain illnesses like Parkinson's and things, this can be very therapeutic, delivering kind of the right kind of you know, voltage to the right parts of the brain at the right time. Of course, it's implanted. It needs to be remotely programmable. It's kind of like a everything wrong with IoT slash embedded security yeah. tale. If you get into the paper of sort of like security by obscurity and sort of a 
a protocol that's not documented but can be reverse engineered. And once you've reverse engineered it, it turns out you could drive all these various attacks and things. And so you think the obvious, like, yes, okay, one, once I can sort of send commands to the device, yes, it could, I mean, you can cause a person to not be able to move, to not be able to speak. Maybe you can do permanent drain damage. Of course, you could probably probably kill someone. You know, and yeah. I hope these devices have safety guards, but given all the other things I know, I, you know, yeah, <laughs> who and knows? Maybe, and, but, the, and those might be overridable. Yeah. If you like, they if might you know be overridable. So, so there's that. But the the thing that really uh, there were two things about this paper that like made, made me kind of just you know go wow. So one of them was you know well, what if you are actually trying to change the signal? We're just trying to actually use it to get signal from the person's brain. And this is something I hadn't twigged, but there's this brain wave called the P300 wave, which, in the name comes, it comes about 300 milliseconds after you've visually seen something. And, you know, you can't really spoof this thing. And they've shown that when, you, when you're recording this wave, it's possible to see if you recognize something like a picture of your password or your PIN or a face that you claim never to have met that you do actually know, etc. And so, I mean, this is this is like sort of, Literally hacking your brain in a sense, you yeah. know, get, getting secrets out in a Reading way that's like, yeah. um, and they're the the newer generations of neurostimulators will expose this P three hundred wave information. So like this is like that's actually possible as a hack. <laughs> you know, like this is this is amazing and scary. Like all of these things are. And then the second really cool thing they do is like, oh come on, we need to do better. You know, we we can't have this kind of security. But actually, how would we generate a secure key for communicating between the implanted device and the programmer? You know, many people try different schemes, and the challenge is nearly always um, you know, not only get a sufficient source of randomness, but also then how you transmit it from inside the device to the program in a way that's secure, that can't be eavesdropped on, etc. Yeah. And the really cool thing that the researchers do is they find something called the LFP, the local fluid potential, which is like a, a physiological signal that can be read from your brain to do with the fluids around the brain and the electrical field in them and some other things I can't fully explain and don't fully understand. But suffice to say, it's kind of pretty unique and pretty random. So they use this as a genuine source of randomness. So literally, your brain is kind of making the random encryption yeah, key, which generator. is really cool. Wow. And then yeah, the other bit is then fairly straightforward. They require a, um, an actual explicit physical touch from the programmer to the skin to kind of have this sent from the wire that goes from the brain down to the device and through the skin, and so yeah. they've got a few protections around it. But, you know, those two mechanisms, like the P300 wave and this LFP thing, were both like, this is really is kind of science fiction. Yeah, very, like, and very, very cutting edge. Uh, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, the world of like a medical IoT is, is yes. a scary one when you, when you say security next to it, but yeah. uh, its potential is amazing. But, you know, the whole with great power comes great yes. responsibility yeah, phrase indeed. really, yeah. really kind of hits a nerve here. These are fascinating, and you know, and they're really again just sort of scratching the uh, the surface. You know, we didn't get to talk too much about privacy. We're going to talk about it. Do you want to just sort of mention in passing a couple yeah, of interesting let, papers? Let, let's there, let's do a, let's do a very quick in passing. So, one interesting paper, again, so quite a practical paper that I recently came across, is called Privacy Guide, and this is the idea that you know, as we all know, like hopefully getting better at the GDPR, but. Buried inside the terms of services are all sorts of stuff. They're incredibly lengthy. Again, the researchers analyzed it. It would take us about 244 days, I think, if you actually wanted to actually read the terms of services for the major services that you use. Um, totally impractical. Yeah. Um, so they use you know, machine learning and NLP and various other techniques, and they read it for you. And they actually turn it into what I think of as a bit like a um, nutrition label. So they've got kind of 11 categories that they've, they've broken it down into, and you get a simple kind of traffic-like scoring in each category. And they'll tell you basically whether the terms look good or they're sent to go and investigate. So that's a, 
that's a kind of really quick aid. Yeah, um, sounds very useful. Yeah, un- underpinning that, my absolute favorite work on privacy notices that work, because we've also researched it shows you can tell somebody this is what this has access to, you can be as explicit as you like, and they'll yeah. still click yes. They'll just push through because they, they they're trying through. to do something else, um, right? So it turns out there is one dialogue that works, and it's from a paper, I give it a brilliant title, The Curious Case of the PDF Converter That Likes Mozart. So it's a, it's a PDF converter app, and as you can imagine, it's downloading, look at your music and all sorts of stuff it shouldn't really need to do. And what they found was the thing that gets people's attention is instead of just saying it will have access to your photos, it will have access to this, they, say, they do say that, and then they say, and this is what it can reveal about you. And they take some examples of information that could be inferred, like these are the faces of the top five people you communicate most with, or, you know, we can figure out that you know you like X and you frequently shop here. And giving these insights of the gleanable from the data actually works. And it could be like, oh, hang on, I don't want that. Maybe I get this impact of what it actually means to reveal that information. Because I just don't think people have a, no. a good intuition about um, how much could be yeah. learned from fairly scarce data. Let me finish with one last kind of yeah, yeah. amazing to me tale, which ties into privacy and the GDPR and sort of this this discussion we're having around anonymization and uh, pseudonymity, God, it's a hard word to say. Um, it's kind of like, the, it's anonymous, but it isn't really. And sort of to be, to be declared fully anonymous, I think that the wording is something like it must be impossible to reverse engineer, which if you kind of read around a bit, like that's also an arms race. And I guess the, the, the paper that brought home to me how clever people are at re-identifying from data is called... Building trajectory out of ash, something very yeah, close to that. Trajectory recovery from ash. Trajectory recovery from ash. Yeah, there you go. And very shortly, maybe, maybe I'll leave this as a as a mental exercise. So we think of how it's done. So here's the setup. You have aggregate data from cell towers. It's a time series, and so we, what you have is cell tower name slash number, identify whatever it is, and count of the number of devices you know communicating with slash attached to that cell tower at this point in time. And you just got that data for all your cell towers and the device counts. And you would think that would be safe to release for kind of analysis and research, etc. And in this paper, the researchers show kind of step by step and you work through it and you go like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, they can uniquely identify all the individual users' trajectories from this aggregate data. Once they've got back to the trajectories, it's actually trivial to find the person. I mean, if you look at like, the accumulation of paths that are connected, like the, the two most common addresses are probably home and work, and you know, you're, you're nearly there. You know, give, yeah. give me three most frequently used locations, and I probably know who you are, with, with a few extra scraps of information. And so they do this step-by-step step just from the aggregate data. It's super clever, and it's, re- it's really ingenious. And the, the essence of the idea is this. If you imagine two cell tower locations, or maybe let's have let's three. Let's make them in a straight line so I could walk from A to B to C. And if there are sort of five people at each of them at, you know, at time one, and at time two, there are sort of six in the leftmost, let's say, and four in the center and five on the right, your most likely guess is that somebody walked from the central tower to the, to the one on the left, if I kept my analogy right. And you can do this and look at like, essentially solving a big optimization or a problem, like what's the, what's the least cost movement that could cause this with some other heuristics about time of day and whether people are likely to move or not and if you're going at a certain velocity you're likely to keep going and yeah. it works and you can solve this set of constraints and outfalls highly reliable trajectories for people so you're never as anonymous as you think is no, really the yeah. lesson you're never anonymous and you know never as safe really like in all these side channels <laughs> yeah. well 
So these are these are scary items. I guess I'll kind of remind the uh, you know everybody kind of reading these is that oftentimes there's some recommendation element here, right? You know, so like you know we we go in one aspect of it is to sort of highlight the concern. Uh, but another more important thing is you know and I think in practically everything and you probably have that bias in in selecting them is some concrete suggestions, advice, sometimes advice to you as a consumer of these things, and sometimes advice to sort of the future creators of these types of entities, which is us, right? That's the tech industry, that's sort of the development industry, or the developers in that, that, that element that can, uh, that can build things right, right? So learn from those and, uh, and, uh, and build them correctly. So Adrian, before you entirely kind of uh, disappear on us here, uh, I have a question I, I like to ask every guest, which is, you know, if you had one kind of security-related, you know, advice or pet peeve that that you like to sort of share, what would that be? It's a great question. I guess I've, I've nominally had the half an hour I have along this conversation to think about <laughs> it, but it's basically been in the back of my mind. Maybe the the thing I would say is the more of this you read and you understand, so like just to reinforce the impossibility of first coming up with a design and then bolting on security after the fact. I think, you know, really security is an integral part of the design and everything else that follows. Um, and that that's the way that you need to be thinking about it. And, and a lot of the right things will fall out with that approach. So perhaps my my pet peeve is kind of the bolt on security slash security by obliviousness slash kind of like, yeah, we didn't really think about it, but it will probably get away with it which uh, in today's kind of highly networked world and with some of the things that are becoming connected as we've talked yeah. about, you know, it's just not responsible anymore to, to have anymore. that approach. Yeah. Cool. Oh, well, yeah, that's a really good tip, good advice. But this was fascinating. We've gotten longer than we intended uh, just because we can just go on and on. We'll post a whole slew of links here, but uh, tell us uh, just quickly if somebody wants to subscribe to the morning paper, you know, how, uh, how do they do it? How do they find you? Uh, yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, so... I guess the simplest way would be to Google the morning paper and maybe my name, Adrian Collier, which is spelled C-O-L-Y-E-R, or it's at blog.acollier.org. Cool. Yeah. And they can register and, you know, I highly recommend it. I've, I've been reading them for quite a while. And yeah, we'll post a bunch of these links so you can, you know, figure out the math for the trajectory from Ash or you can actually read the paper uh, or at least uh, Adrian's summary of it. Adrian, it, this has been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for coming on. That was on. a ton of fun. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for joining us and tune in for the next episode. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies given by top experts in the field. 